It is great to be able to be with you today. I want to thank you for taking the time, and we are just slamming the middle of summer, and people are moving absolutely every direction, but thank you for taking the time when uh, you're able to be able to join together. God knew what he was doing when he said, man, we, we need to see each other, we need to encourage each other, and so thank you for being a part of this. Thank you for joining us online when you are away. Many of you are, are, are just connected each week in that way also, so uh, grateful that I can share with you today. I got a shocking story. It's shocking, and it's true. It's actually, I would consider it probably the most shocking story in the book of Acts, which we are studying right now. We're working our way through between now and the end of the year. Because it's shocking, it's a story that we kind of like to tell. It's fun to tell. But I'm not sure that most people know what to do with it. Like, I'm not sure most people understand the significance of the story. I'm fairly confident that if I asked you, hey, when you read the book of Acts, what do you see God doing in Acts to grow his church? I, I, I bet you would not tell this story. But by the time we're done today, maybe our view will change a little bit and maybe we should tell this story. So let me catch you up. Here's how it goes. Jesus rose from the dead. He spent 40 days, right, hanging out with his disciples, teaching them about the kingdom. He ascends to heaven. On the day of Pentecost, just like Jesus said what happened, the Holy Spirit comes, right, placing believers into one body by sharing the common life of Christ. He creates his body. The, the church is born. At first, it's about 120 the good news of Jesus is proclaimed and it quickly becomes 3,000. The, the good news is proclaimed again and it becomes 5,000. But Luke tells us that's men. So by the time you add the women, the young, I, I, most people would certainly agree it's probably at least double that. Some scholars would say by this point the church may already be 20,000 people. It is growing, it is joyful. They are bold about their witness of Jesus' resurrection, and they are one. These people are together, even to the point of willing to do things like sell their property in order to meet the needs of their brothers and sisters. Let me give you an example of that. Before we get to chapter 5, I want to read the last verses of chapter 4. This is how it reads, Joseph a Levite from Cyprus, <clears throat> whom the apostles called Barnabas. Some of us recognize that name. We'll see him again. Which means son of encouragement. Sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now that little phrase to say he brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet, it just means that people like Barnabas were not trying to control their giving. They're not trying to control their money. They're just saying, here's an amount of money. We want it to be used wherever it is needed. And one of the greatest issues of need was the fact that there was this large number of believers, Jesus followers now, who had come for the Feast of Pentecost. 
So they came from other cities. Some of them came from other countries. Now they have put their faith in Jesus. Their identity is now in him, and they've stayed. And maybe part of the reason that they've stayed is because this is where the church is right now. Right? They don't get to go back home to a church that's already existing. And so the, the church is there, right? They, they want to be together. And for many of them, there's this question of what are they going back to? Because once they declare that they line up with Jesus, many of these good Jewish people would be cast out of the synagogue, no longer welcome. So there are, there are social issues at play here, right? They, they've, they've, they're cut off from their social life. Some of them, it's going to cost them financially. It's going to cost them their jobs. Some of them, even, it will even cost them their families. So they stay, and they need to be cared for. And so one of the ways that the church would meet some of those needs is Luke tells us people like Barnabas were willing to sell a field. That sets up our story. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Now. You could read the now in this text sort of like a but, right? And I've talked to you about big buts before, right? There are, there are big buts in Scripture. This is a big now. It's, it's the same idea. We, we've just read about Barnabas, but. we just read about Barnabas now. Now. A man named Ananias together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Ananias means the Lord is gracious. That's what his name means. Sapphira, as you might Yes, sapphire. It's about a, a beautiful, something beautiful, a beautiful um, jewel, if you will. But what is about to happen in this story is anything but gracious and beautiful. Now, at first glance, it looks like, it looks like they're doing exactly what, what Barnabas has done, right? They've sold some property. They're, they're putting it at the apostles' feet. But we, we heard that, it, is the problem going to be that they kept part of the money? Is that the problem? Let's keep reading. Verse 3, then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan hmm, has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Now, first question, how does Peter know this? Like, I, 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 I don't think Peter's looking at the books for Ananias and Sapphira. I, I think this is one of those most likely Holy Spirit revealing moments. But what we get in these few verses is our, ah, this is the problem. The problem is, they lied. They lied. In other words, they said, they gave the impression that they were selling a piece of property and giving all of it. 
when in reality they were not giving all of it. They were keeping part of it. So we got this scenario, and you're going, is that really a big deal? Well, it appears to be one thing, but really it's another. Do you know the label that even people outside the church put on such activity within the church when we appear to be one thing but are actually another? Hypocrite. That's the term. Hypocrite. Right, People who say one thing, but they actually are something else. People who, they, they give an appearance of being one thing, but they're, but they're actually something else. And the phrase that was used there, how, how, that you let Satan so fill your heart, it's actually the same word filled that is used that we've read already about being filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, let's talk about this. I am convinced from Scripture that when Jesus owns the house, Nobody else can own the house. So when Jesus enters the life of a believer, I don't believe Satan can take up residence in your life, right? Jesus is the king. The enemy is no match for him. I do not believe that a person can be demon-possessed when Jesus is the king of your life. But the scripture is clear that we can certainly be influenced by an enemy. We, we can certainly be impacted by an enemy. We can certainly be impacted by the demonic, and that seems to be what's taking place here. I think these two people, this couple, I think they are believers. Reason being so far. It, it's, this, it's this language of all were filled with the Holy Spirit. They, they are all, right, devoted to the apostles' teaching and to prayer and to fellowship. I don't think we're dealing with two false Christians here. I think we're dealing with two hypocritical Christians here. Verse 4, Peter says, didn't it, that's the property, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What, what, what does that mean? It, it means like, look, wasn't this, this who, did, did you have to sell this? Like, did God command you to sell this? No. And after you sold it, I mean, did you have to give the money? No. That's his questions. Didn't this belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, <coughs> but to God. Twice we get the clarity. They are lying about what they're doing here. It is not a sin to keep the property. In this particular case, God did not command them to give the property. Now, do I think there are certain moments that God directs us to do specific things with, with, with resources that he's given us? Absolutely. And when he tells you to do something, you should do it. In this particular case, it is not an instance where God told them they had to sell the property. They're making the decision to do so. It's not a sin to keep the property. It's not a sin to sell the property. It's not a sin to sell the property and keep part of the price. The sin is that they what? 
They lied about it. They lied about it. They made the church believe that they wanted to give everything. Peter says, you even, you vowed to the Holy Spirit that you were giving everything. Now, why would they do this? I, I, I think it's, they wanted spiritual status, right? They, they want to be elevated in the eyes of the people. They want to be honored and appreciated just like they have seen already happen, maybe in people like Barnabas. They wanted to be thought of as godly and generous, but they weren't actually willing to give it all. They just wanted it to appear as so. Now, recognize, as we start this journey through Acts, right, Jesus, the the church is born and the enemy gets active, right? And he starts on the outside. The enemy starts with persecution. We've already seen Peter and John thrown in prison, right? Already some, some, some persecution of them receiving some, some, some beatings. We've already seen that happen. The enemy starts on the outside. But what happens is instead of that persecution crushing the church, God actually uses the persecution to empower the church. And the more the persecution happens, the more the church spreads. The old saying that the blood of the martyrs becomes the seed of the church is absolutely true. And so, Satan changes his strategy. And instead of attacking from the outside, how can he kill the body? He goes inside. I want us to understand some things about hypocrisy, right? Because I mean, when it comes to hypocrites, it's sort of a word that unfortunately is synonymous with the church, but I think there's a reason. When I talk about hypocrisy, I'm talking about hypocrisy in the church, all right? And I want you to see a few things. Here's the first one. Hypocrisy is usually present. Do you know that? It's usually present. Even Jesus told a story about a farmer who sows some seeds in order to to see the wheat grow, but he says at night the enemy sows weeds among the wheat. And he says both grow up together. The wheat grows up and the weeds grow up together. And, And he says the servants ask the question, do you want us to pull up all the weeds? And he said no, no. But Jesus made it clear that at the harvest, Everything will be seen for what is real and what is not. At the harvest, everything will be seen for what is genuine and what is not. Sometimes I have this conversation with people and they're like, I, I, you know, I, just, I just don't want to be a part of a church that, that has hypocrites. And I'm like, I don't know if that exists. For real. I don't know if there really is a church that does not have hypocrites. I don't don't know. What's your best plan of action to ensure that the church isn't full of them? You don't be one. That's your best plan of action. Don't be one, right? So you're you're going, Jeff, do you really think that there are hypocrites at Heart of Life? Yes. 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 
I actually have a list. So I'm going to ask that as I, as I read your name, will you please stand wherever you are, all right? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I assure you that I do not have um, apostolic revelation. I, I, when I meet people, I, I don't usually right know Hey, here's a hypocrite, here's a not. Sometimes we think we wish we knew that stuff, but I'm not sure that would be helpful, to be honest. But I do pray that God will reveal it. I do. I pray that God will reveal it. And I pray that God will reveal it because, second thing we got to understand is hypocrisy is usually hidden. It's the nature of hypocrisy. The word means to, to disguise. That's what the word is about. It's about wearing a mask. Some of y'all been waiting for more than a year for me to say God hates mask, right? Not that kind of mask. He hates the kind of mask that people wear when they're pretending to be one thing, but they're actually something very different. The reason we know there's hypocrites in this story is because God exposes it. I'm telling you that it is often the case that hypocrisy exists within the church for years and years and years and years and nobody ever knows. Sometimes people die, hypocrites, and you don't know. It's hidden. That's part of the nature of what hypocrisy is. But here's the third piece. Hypocrisy is always corrupting. It's usually present, it's usually hidden, but it's always corrupting. It not only affects the heart of the individual who is pretending, but it also affects the heart of the church. And that is why God is dealing with it here in this story. The, the truth, though, uh, to deal with hypocrisy, I mean, it offends people. You start, you start talking about pretending, it makes people uncomfortable, and sometimes churches are actually afraid to address this. But God's like, look, this is about your health. This is about the health of the body. The church is to be a gathering of truly redeemed people, and God is not okay with hypocrites hiding inside. That's the work of an enemy. It's the Apostle Paul who says, right, a little little leaven will work its way through the whole batch of dough. There is an effect here where hypocrisy, it, it literally sucks the power out of the church. It corrupts the unity of the church. It devastates the testimony of the church because the world is looking at these people and going, this is what Christianity is? Having superficially committed people is not helpful. It's not helpful. It may make us feel good because we're checking some boxes on the outside, but it doesn't help the church advance the good news effectively because it confuses people about what Christianity really is. So in this story, God is shining the light. He's exposing the sin to make us aware of its presence and to show us how he feels about it. And he does it by handling it in front of everybody. Because yes, we all are capable. We all 
are subject. We all at times are tempted to put on a mask of spirituality. Man, from a leader's standpoint, this is pretty bold on Peter's part, don't you think? Because right now he's got the best thing in the world going on. He's got the fastest organization in the world growing, right? The church is just booming. People, people are joining, right, all, almost faster than you can count. There's, there's love and there is unity. People are being sacrificial. They're, they're, they're giving of their resources. And, I mean, we did just get a lot of money from Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, maybe... Maybe the best thing here is just to chill on this. I mean, do we really want to make an issue out of it? Maybe it's, it's better that they at least they sold the land and we got what we got. I mean, Ananias and Sapphira really are some of the, the wealthier people in, in the congregation, and we do need the work to keep going. Maybe we should just be appreciative. That's not how Peter thinks. Verse 5, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. (laughs) He died. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. You think? Check out verse 6. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, carried him out and buried him. (laughs) Like, done. Now, I'm reminding you that in Israel, burial is immediate. They don't embalm. They did not embalm. Uh, A body was simply buried, and so therefore you had to act quickly. Luke tells us in this story that it took about three hours um, by the time they, they wrap his body in some sort of a you know, cloth or blanket and you got to carry that body to some sort of a grave, sometimes it was a cave, whatever it might be. Normally it's outside, right, the city proper. It's, it's outside where the people live and so it would take a little while to get to wherever that location is and to place the body and to get back. It took about three hours. And in the meantime, in walks Sapphira. Ananias' wife, and she knows nothing of what has just happened. She's showing up at church about three hours later. I don't know what that was about. I don't know if it just took her that much longer to get ready for church or if she's like letting Ananias do the front work and then she's going to right stroll in a little excited to, to get some of the glory because by now the news is out. Everybody knows they have given such a significant gift and, and maybe this is just theater for her but Peter confronts her and he says, is this the price you paid for the land? She said, yes. And his response is, then, then how? How could you test? How, how could you conspire against the Holy Spirit? He said, I want you to listen. 
What you hear are the feet of the men who just buried your husband. They are at the door and they're about to carry you out. The story is she falls dead in the same spot. They pick her up, they carry her out, and they bury her beside her husband. Did you hear what happened at church today? (laughs) Wow. Verse 11, Luke repeats it. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. And I would say that for many people, this would lead us to a place to think, well, that's probably it. I mean, this whole booming growth of the church, that's probably done. I mean, these people are going to run for their lives, right? I doubt we get many inquiries this week about children's ministry, right? It's over. It's done. But wait. Verse 12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Whoa! See, what we, what we thought would happen actually didn't happen. Actually, the opposite happened. I, I'm going to give you a little line of thinking here. Uh, what, what he says is we got some signs and wonders that, the, that they continued to see God's hand do. And the result of that here, more believe. But the unbelievers would not join. Some believe... But those that did not believe, they, 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 they would not come along. Now, we have seen, I want to talk this for a few minutes, we've seen the one to signs and wonders already. We, we, have, we have seen a miracle where those disciples, those apostles are speaking in different languages that people are able to understand. We have seen a 40-year-old man crippled be able to, to not only walk but to begin to jump and to praise God. We have seen the miracles happen But when they were praying for signs and wonders, I wonder if this is what they thought. I wonder if this is what they were thinking. But the sign on this day at church was clear. God was at work here with a very clear purpose. And I want us to notice it says, more believe. More believe. The number of the church got bigger, not smaller. And all of a sudden, we, we, we start to see again and again the reason. Back in chapter 4, back in chapter 4, we studied it last week. Peter and John put in prison, right? There's persecution that's beginning to happen. When they get out, the church gathers and they pray. And what do they pray? God, give us boldness that we may declare your word. And God, would you stretch out your hand and perform signs and wonders? Why do they pray that? This is the reason. It is that more might believe. 
See, I want us to understand that signs and wonders, miracles are not in competition with God's word. They are actually divine witnesses to the value, to the truth, to the necessity, to the centrality, actually, of God's word. They, they point to Jesus. Listen to me. Miracles don't save people. Miracles do not transform the hearts of people. But God can use Miracles. He can use those signs and wonders to break the shell of disinterest, sometimes to break the shell of cynicism, sometimes to open that heart that seems so closed. There is this moment of <gasps> when they see the power of God at work, it becomes this opportunity for them to see the truth of the gospel the goodness of who Jesus is. Let me give you a couple of statements here because we haven't talked about this yet and I want to start to talk about it and we're going to keep talking about it as we go through the book of Acts. But here's my first statement. If, if the motive is to promote yourself or to mask your lack of belief, then asking God for signs and wonders is wrong. We're going to see a story coming up where somebody wants some signs and wonders to take place so that it benefits them, right? If, if we want to see miracles happen because it it's benefits us in, in the sense of it promotes us, no, that's not what this is about. Then, then there are those, it goes this way, God I, know, God, I know that you say that you love me, but if you would just do this, God, if you would just do this thing, then I'll know that you love me. God, and then it becomes, God, and then if you'll just do this thing, then I'll know that you love me. God, if you'll, if you'll provide this, then I'll know that you love me. And it just becomes this asking with a motive. What it really is, is it's a mask that I don't trust him. It's a mask that I don't really believe him. But let me make another statement for you. Signs and wonders provide opportunity to boldly declare the greatness of Jesus through the gospel, the good news. The gospel is that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, third day arose. What we see happen in the book of Acts is they pray that God will give them boldness to declare his word. And they also ask that God will do miraculous things so that when those miraculous things happen and everybody sees them happen, they know it cannot be explained except for who? It's got to be God. And it creates this opportunity for them to speak boldly about who this God is. They, they can speak clearly about who Jesus is. I, I, I want us to get the picture of this signs and wonders God does. The good news is proclaimed out of that. You've got genuine believers who are, who are one. They are loving one another. They are unselfish. Their generosity, their care. And what happens is it makes the world gasp. Because the church is gorgeous. 
You ever see something that's just so beautiful it just <gasps> kind of takes your breath away? I'm going to go so far as to say I think this is the moment that God is serious about making his church drop dead gorgeous. Oh, come on, that's good. Drop dead gorgeous. You would have thought this would have made people run the other way but it actually made them go, oh, whoa. Signs and wonders led more people to believe. But don't miss the other part. It also said that even though they highly regarded the church, like the people on the outside, they, they knew these people are what? For real. <laughs> like these people aren't just putting on a show. This isn't just some act that they gather together and walk through some motions. Man, there's some power behind this. There, there is something going on here that's for real. And if you, have you seen how these people love each other? Have you seen how these people care for each other? Man, they won't even sell stuff to love each other. These people are genuine. They had a high regard for them, but it says they wouldn't join them. So there's an aspect of this that I want you to see. God is designing a church where non-believers are not comfortable. Can I tell you that's a good thing? He's designing a church where those who don't believe are not comfortable. It would make no sense for them to be there. If they're running from God, why would they be in the middle of this God who is for real? Means business. This is part of, I believe with all my heart, why God gives us instruction in his word of things like how you and I help each other out in trying to follow Jesus, but at times dealing with our sin. This is why. Now, what I'm talking about here is not every little nitpick sin, right? This is not... This, this is not, there are moments that you and I, come on, we are guilty of reacting at a certain moment and we do something. That, this is not that. This is, yeah, I said that. I shouldn't have said that. There's a, right, I, I'm sorry. I, this is not about nitpick sin. But, but God gives us real instruction when, when we see one of our brothers or sisters in the body of Christ who is marching down a road of what I call habitual sin. It's this repeated, re repeated pattern of I'm doing something that is destructive. I'm doing something that I know is apart from the heart of God, and this is going to cost greatly. Here's what he says. You are to go and to say to that brother, hey man, look, I care about you. And I'm not pretending like I got it all together, but I'm just saying I care about you and you are marching down a road here that is destructive. I, I want you to turn around. I want you to turn back to Jesus. And it says that if he repents, if he turns back to Jesus, then you've gained a brother. You just proved that you are willing to risk in order to love him. But if he will not repent, then you take somebody with you and the two of you go and you again confront him. 
And then, if he will not repent, then it becomes a church matter. It's a body of Christ matter. And then, if he will not repent, he is put outside the church. Now, here's how we think. We think if we do that, that'll drive everybody away. And what God actually demonstrates in his word is that if we don't do that, it'll actually drive everybody away. Because even the world can recognize a hypocrite. And if these people don't even care about what it really means to follow Jesus, if they're okay with just saying one thing and actually being something else, if they're okay with just making an appearance to be all holy, but really this is how they treat people or this is how they do business. It's like, no, this is key. This is key. You say, okay, but Jeff, how do we balance that with grace? Well, first of all, it is grace, right? Because you're not going condemning. You're not going say, hey, look how bad you are and I'm not. No, you're going with humility. You're going with love. You're going that this may cost you greatly, but you care so much about somebody that you're willing to go. It's grace. But I would also say we balance that with this statement. People moving toward Jesus should feel welcome here, even when they fail. So understand what I'm saying. For somebody who does not yet profess that Jesus is their king, I want you to know that this body of believers is a safe place for you to hang out. If you're asking questions about who Jesus is, if you're exploring about whether or not this whole faith thing is real, for some of us, we got some junk, man, that we've been dealt in our past, some, some ways that perhaps the church has treated us, some, some things that happened that we don't understand why God let happen. And so we need a place where it's safe, that we can ask some really hard questions, but that people would be willing to listen. My point is, that's a picture of somebody who is trying to move toward Jesus trying to move toward Jesus, and we always want to be such a place that it is safe for you to explore who he is. But this statement also means that for those of us who are Jesus followers, let's be clear, we all sin. Don't need any mask in this room pretending like we don't sin, because we do. We all sin. But we have declared we want to follow Jesus. The best we know how we want to follow him. We need one another. Days like today where we rally together and and we encourage one another and we say, come on, let's follow him like, like he calls us to follow. But there are still moments that we sin. But when we sin, what do we do? We repent. We turn to Jesus 
When we, when we, when we sin, we, we, we turn to him. It is still turning to him. That's my point. As long as people are, are turning to him, man, they are welcome as a part of the body of Christ. That's the picture that, that, that he gives us of the church. Only, if you go back to the sequence that we get in Matthew 18, only when somebody refuses to turn are the instructions for, from Jesus for us to say, no, you gotta remove them. You gotta remove them. You see the picture? You say, Jeff, how do you know, how do you know if it's real repentance with people? How do you know that people aren't just putting on a show how do you know that people aren't wearing a mask? How do you know who's really for real and who isn't? I don't. I don't know. Because the wheat and the weeds, they grow up together. But at the harvest, it will be clear. And my encouragement for you today is don't wait for the harvest. Don't wait for the harvest. Where are you pretending? Where are you pretending? It's like, what do we do with this one? Well, we stop pretending. That's what we do. Nobody here needs to pretend that they're better than they are in order to be here. Mm -mm. You, you're, you're saying, man, I, I want to be, I, I, I'm turning toward Jesus, but, and here are the things that I've done. Here's the things that I struggle with. Welcome. And you would be embraced by a whole bunch of people in this room who would go, we know exactly what you're talking about. We know what that fight looks like. Come on, together. Let's stop pretending. And let's be truthful with him. For some of us, we need to be willing to actually verbally give permission to some folks in our lives that we trust. That if you ever see me marching down some road that is apart from the heart of God, will you please come after me? I'm not promising you that I'm going to right, hug you on that day. I'm not promising you that I'm going to thank you on that day. But will you please fight for me? Some of us need to actually say to some people that we trust, that we, that we, that we believe are genuine, hey, I, I want you to call me on it, man, because I want to be real. I want this to be genuine between me and God. You see me marching down a road, call me on it. But then we also have to be willing to do that for other people. We got to be willing that we care enough. See, most of the time we just play the card, well, it's none of my business. No, Jesus says it is. Now, it's not about being nosy. It's not about gossip. And in case you didn't know before, Jesus knows the motive of your heart. 
So don't be going pointing out people's sin, right? Because it, it makes you feel better. He's, dis, he's displayed today. He, the outward action, he sees it, but he also knows the motive of the heart. No, this is about loving people enough that you will even risk a relationship. Sometimes they don't turn. But can I tell you that my experience has been that most of the time, they do. They do. When somebody who loves them enough will come alongside to say, come on, man, turn back toward Jesus. I'll walk with you. Come back toward Jesus. Many times they will. The charge today is, church, let's be truthful. Let's be genuine. Let's keep following Jesus. Let's repent when we fail and quit acting like we don't fail. Let's care for people. Let's demonstrate generosity. Let's ask for boldness that we will speak God's word when we get the opportunity. And let's ask God that he would stretch out his hand and do things that when it's happened, everybody knows it couldn't have been us. It's got to be him. And we will walk through that door and declare the greatness of our God. Let's be the church. Jesus loved us enough that he gave us this story today. Because the real thing is something incredibly beautiful. Pretending is exhausting. Truth sets you free. Jesus, I am asking that you would help us to know what to do today with a story that we too often love to tell but are a little bit slower to act on. God, I think what is most unnerving to me about this story is that it's not, it's not really the picture of a couple who, who aren't as committed as anybody else. It's not a picture of somebody who maybe only shows up at church every now and then and really doesn't have any other connection uh, in ministry or anything else, that, that's pretty obvious. Those moments are obvious. This is somebody who looks like they lead. This couple, they are somebody who looks like they are crazy committed to you. And Lord, I, I, I pray. I pray that with gentleness, you would lift the mask of pretending from heart of life, including mine. God, in any way, we are giving a false impression in any way that we are seeking false glory in any way God would you lift the mask that your people might experience the freedom of living in truth God, I thank you that you care so much about us. I thank you that you care so much about your body. I thank you that you love us so much that you would give such a story to demonstrate 
God, today, will you help us to be honest? I pray, God, for everybody who hears my voice, there are some of us that just need to confess some things to you today. God, who need to turn back to you. There may be some who, God, our next step is to go after somebody that is running the other direction, and your word told us what to do. We just haven't done it yet. We need to go after them. God, however you speak today, I pray that you will give us courage to follow and that we will be honest. It's in the name of Jesus that I ask it.